This is a Woodside Church podcast. We're going to continue our teaching series, which we call the DNA of our church. Now, each of these themes actually are not particular to Woodside, they're to be characteristics of the whole Christian church, but we've identified a number that particularly we want to prophetically emphasise for who we are at the moment in the situation we're in. Okay, so um, it's not that there's anything special about us in them, but we are saying these are the things that we feel God's called us to particularly and one of these is what I call what we've called call to reflect our community. That is that we should be a diverse community of young and old, all social groups, many ethnic groups, and therefore serve and reflect the diverse community that makes up Bedford. Okay. So why is this? Well, firstly, and I'm going to spend 90% of my preach on this one, because It is what the Bible teaches us the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be. You see, often we think we're living in unusual times with people movements all over the world, lots of immigration, lots of refugees. But the scattering of people groups was common in biblical times, sometimes for positive reasons, sometimes negative, as indeed it has been throughout history. Yeah, we sometimes think, well, we're having a lot of refugees in our own nation. In Turkey, they have at least two to three million. Okay. And one of our churches there um, has a Turkish-speaking congregation, a Farsi-speaking congregation for Iranian refugees, and an Arabic-speaking congregation for Syrian and Iraqi refugees. And it's been like that throughout history, and it's reflected in the Bible a lot. So the person we talk about as the father of our faith, Abraham, was someone called to move. Okay? God said, I'm going to bless you, make you a blessing to every family on earth, and by the way, you must be on the move. And in his case, didn't know where he was going. People of Israel themselves were refugees in Egypt for 400 years and then moved out en masse through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to Canaan. And they were always told, don't forget you were refugees in Egypt, so always treat the refugee and stranger amongst you as you would one native born. Jesus was a refugee it's part of the Christmas story we don't often teach but because of the persecution by Herod Herod's desire to kill him he and his family moved to Egypt so of course Christians care for refugees because we serve the greatest refugee in history The Jewish people lived all over the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament and would come to Jerusalem 
once or twice a year. And that was the effectiveness of the day of Pentecost, which was the birthday of the church. When the Holy Spirit came on the church, and it says each of them understood, but it says it was Jews from every nation. Each of them understood in their own language. So they had by that time absorbed fully into the place where they were. And spoke the language. I woke a few of you up, don't you? Okay. <laughs> if you fall asleep again, they'll arrange it again. Okay, so... They, so we each understand in our own language. They were Jews, but they were, were speaking the language of where they'd moved to. Like today, the cities of the Roman Empire where the Christian gospel was first preached and churches first established, were multi-ethnic, multi-social cities. For example, in one place, Antioch, which is now called Antakya in southeast Turkey, there were Chinese, Indians, Arabs and Africans, as well as Greeks and Jews. And one of the Africans was on the leadership team of the church. And the New Testament frequently addressed the issues this raised in the church as people became followers of Jesus from diverse backgrounds. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell three New Testament stories about this issue. Then we'll look at one or two specific scriptures and then apply it to us. I like doing it from stories. First story is the story of Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius was a senior officer in the Roman army. Remember, the Romans were not only foreign to the Jews, they were oppressors of the Jews. And at that time, there were only Jewish believers in the church. But Cornelius, this Roman officer, was already praying regularly and being generous to the poor and had a vision of an angel saying, Go and find Peter, then the leader of the church, in, who's living in a place called Joppa, or Jaffa today, where the oranges come from. Okay, so, now, where God is moving into new places, this idea of an angel appearing, or even Jesus appearing in a dream, is quite normal. I travel around the world. I meet lots of people who've had visions and dreams or an angel has appeared because it's the breakthrough moment. And so he was told to go and call Peter. Meanwhile, Peter was decided to go up onto the rooftop, flat roof, to pray. And as sometimes happens when you pray, he fell asleep. <laughs> okay. Okay, one or two can relate to that. I mean, most of you are too spiritual to know what I'm talking about. But uh, he, he fell asleep and God gave him a vision. And in this vision, this sheet appeared out of heaven with all sorts of animals in it, which were all unclean to a Jewish person who they were forbidden to eat them. Now it's ever so difficult to convey today what that means. Because it wasn't only that the food was strange. I mean often people will ask Scylla and myself, what's the strangest food you've eaten in all your travels? Now it's a very difficult question to answer because of course the food is not strange to the people that we've gone to. 
So I try and think of what, well, what's the culture of the person I'm now talking to? You know, some people find English food extremely strange. You know, the Russians think, you boil vegetables. Boiled vegetables. And so, um, sorry, I didn't get the point then. The, uh, and so I, you know, I try and think, okay, well, I've enjoyed roast rat. Oh, you see, you see, well, that's a cultural response. I, it's, I found it hard to eat maggots with chopsticks. Maggots are okay, but it's, eating them with chopsticks is a little difficult. And so, but actually that does not convey, because it wasn't just that it was food that he wasn't used to eating. It was something that for two millennia, he'd been, his, his people had been taught, it is unclean, unholy to eat that food. And so the whole, everything would revolt within him. Not just, it's strange, but it's forbidden. And so he was told three times, Peter, kill them and eat them. And he said, the thing that should be an impossible statement, no, Lord. <laughs> it's either Lord or you, you know. <laughs> but anyway... In the end, Peter got the point, and at that, point, at that time, these people from Cornelius came and asked Peter to go with him. And so Peter, for the very first time in his life, would have been into a non-Jewish house and eaten non-Jewish food. It would have been massive for him. Massive. Because in that culture, as in most of the world today, to sit and eat a meal with people says we're accepting one another, we're being friendly with one another, we're eating as equals. That's what it means. You know, in the West, having a coffee together in Starbucks scarcely does it. Okay, but, that's, but it means acceptance. And Peter going there was already saying, we accept you. Because he was eating with them. And as he preached, it must have been a remarkable time, even before he'd finished, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And they started speaking in other languages. Amazing. And, and then Peter said, well, God's accepted them. He must have done. He's given them his Holy Spirit. Therefore, how can we call them unclean? That story is so important. It's told twice in the book of Acts. Then there's the story of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy city in the ancient world. The church there, however, was mainly poorer people, but with some who were very rich. So amongst them was a guy called Erastus, who was the city treasurer. Now, I know in Bedford, Mike, being the city treasurer doesn't mean you're very rich, personally. But in that world, it did, okay? So Mike's equivalent in Corinth was Erastus, and he was very rich. And there was another guy called Gaius, whose house 
was so big that even when all the house churches came together, they could easily meet in Gaius' house. There were others in Corinth who got offended by Paul because they, he wouldn't accept them paying for all his expenses. And the reason he wouldn't accept it is because then under that culture, they would have some sort of control over him and therefore he would not come under that because he didn't want the rich to dominate the church. So that's the church in Corinth. And in Corinthian houses, you would have, they actually had two dining rooms, the big ones. One where the rich would eat and then the slaves and the poor would eat in a secondary one. And so in the church in Corinth, in those days when you had what we call communion service or breaking of bread, they did that as part of a meal. And part of they worshipped, they would have a meal together and as part of that, they would have the breaking of bread. And so in Corinth, the rich would be there all day Some of them had even drunk too much. And the poor would come later and perhaps not have enough to eat. And Paul was so angry about this. He wrote to them and he said, your meetings do more harm than good. That wouldn't be a very nice letter to get, would it? Okay. Because when you come together, there's all this discrimination between rich and poor. He said, you don't discern that you're all equally part of the body of Christ. He said things like, for this reason, some of you are ill and some have even died. Because you're eating God's judgment to you in what should be God's blessing to you. Because you were discriminating rich against poor. Massive issue. Often, you know, it says you should examine yourself and then eat. And we often apply to that, well, think back over the week. Did I do something I shouldn't do on Wednesday? I'll confess that quick and then I can go and eat. That's not what he's talking about at all. What he's talking about is discrimination within the body of Christ. In that context, rich against poor. But it could be any other sort of discrimination. That is what it means to eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Wow. So that's races in Cornelius, rich and poor in Corinth. Then there's a contrast with the Jerusalem temple. See, the temple in Jerusalem dominated the ancient city and spoke about division. Rightly so, to emphasise the holiness of God. So, in the centre of the temple, there was a, what's called the most holy place. And there was a curtain or a veil, which was, when Jesus died, was torn from top to bottom. But which, at that time, only the priest, high priest could go once a year. So separation, only the high priest there. Then there was another courtyard where only Jewish men could go. Then there was another courtyard where only Jewish women could go. So already separation, you understand? 
then there was a great thick wall. And about 150 years ago, they found the stone of one of these walls. And on it, it's not on one of these walls, one of the stones of this wall. And on it was inscribed, anyone not of Jewish birth who goes further will be responsible for their own death. We don't train our welcome team to do that sort of thing, okay? We're, we're saying, please come in, everybody. <laughs> but it said separation, separation between man and God, between men and women, and between Jews and other nations. And this is referred to in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the section where he talks about what we call one new humanity in Christ. Now, it's a difficult translation because English is a bit weak on this one. Greek had a word for man meaning mankind and a separate word for man as distinction woman. Okay, and the word used here is for all of mankind. And so the English one new man in Christ doesn't quite do it. Okay, so I prefer to say one new humanity in Christ. And this is what it says. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. What was the wall of hostility? Go on. Fun? Not the veil, no. What's the wall of hostility? It's this big wall that said anyone not of Jewish birth can, can't come further. That was showing hostility between nations. <coughs> he did this by ending the system of law with its commands and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself, and this translation says one new people, but the problem is one new people, it's used in other terms to translate one new nation and so on like that. So I would say one new humanity from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. No more discrimination of any sort. All separation has been broken. We all come before Christ on the same basis. If it's, he said it's abolished the law and commandments. You see, if it was under the law and commandments, one person could say, well, I've kept more than you. You know, I've done 60%. You're only at 20%. Ah. That's all gone, all gone completely. Now it is that all have been, all come in on the basis of being totally lost and hopeless in their sin and shame and receive from Jesus Christ his righteousness, which enables us to have total freedom into the presence of God. Okay. So... When Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Why? So that whatever basis, we could all go in at any time into the presence of God. When Rachel started the service, she would talk about, let's come into the presence of God together. You wouldn't have to say, well, I'm not sure I can. Oh, I'm not sure I'm good enough. No, it's not on that basis at all. You have righteousness as a gift. If you're a believer in Jesus, 
And so the temple represented separation from God and constant bringing of division between people. And Jesus through the cross broke the barrier between God and man, broke the barrier between Jews and any other nation. Therefore broke the barriers between every nation and every ethnic group. Sin was taken away so that everyone approaches God on the same basis. And what it becomes instead is one new humanity in Christ and no longer in Adam. The way the Bible describes it is that when, before you come to faith in Christ, you are part of humanity in Adam. In humanity in Adam, there's all sorts of divisions. When you come to Christ, you come on the same basis and you're now one new humanity in Christ where there's no division at all. You understand? So those are three stories. The, but not, it's not only social as in Corinth. It's not only racial as in uh, Cornelius. It's not only every division as in Ephesians, but also it's intergenerational because the church respects all ages. So the Bible says this, never speak harshly to an older man. Okay, remember that, I'm an older man now. (laughs) Don't mind admitting it. Never speak harshly to an older man but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother. And treat younger women with all all purity as you would your own sisters. That's the basis for intergenerational harmony within the church. Okay, so the first reason is because of what, what, because of what Scripture teaches us about the church. The second reason why we should distribute our DNA is because where God has placed us in Bedford. So there's a prophetic contextual application as well as a biblical application. Whether in the east or the west, we're in a town which has many ethnic groups and nations within it has a cross-section of people of different social backgrounds, rich and poor, educated and not, all sorts of professions, local workers and commuters. Therefore, to reach our town, we must be able to reach all those groups. When people come to church for the first time, it's helpful if they can say, whoever they are, there are people like us here. That's a major evangelistic statement. Where the different ethnic groups, young families, teenagers, seniors, etc. We say, God wants us to be a church that demonstrates our unity because we need to reach our town, which has this wonderful diversity. I'm so glad I live in a diverse place. And thirdly, because it is to impact our style and our practice. So it's not just a good theory. So in all our teams, leadership team, worship team, home group leaders team, children's and youth teams, welcome team, whoever it is, we're going to say, let's make it as diverse as we can. In every way, ethnically, socially, (laughs) age-wise. (laughs) 
You came in just as a brilliant illustration to what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, come on. Okay. Must all reflect this ambition. Next, in our attitude. So, in our teams, in our attitude. That there's never, we don't allow any sense of superiority. The Bible says this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. This is a very interesting scripture. It says you put off your old self with all its old sinful practices. And when you put on your new self, your identity now is not who you are racially or socially or educationally. Here is neither of those. The first thing about becoming a Christian is that your identity changes. But it doesn't just change from being, I used to pursue my own way, I'm now trying to follow Christ. That's the outwork. It changes essentially in who you are. So I have come to Christ. I, my identity is no longer I'm an Englishman. My identity is I am in Christ, united with all who are in Christ, and happen to be English. I've had to work this out with... Pastors in nations are at war with each other. I've had to have meetings to do this. Where they think, you know, because people tend to support their own country at times of war. And I've had to say to pastors who are criticising each other because they were from different countries who were warring at each other. And I've said, no, no, your identity first is not your nationality, but your in being in Christ. Your identity is not your educational background. It is in Christ. Your identity is not the job you do. It is in Christ. And in Christ, you then do those things. Do you understand? Do you? Because it's very, very important. It's who you are essentially. Therefore... Paul goes on to say, can you give me another two or three minutes? <laughs> Fun? Okay. He says, no barbarian anymore. What's that? Well, that referred to the non-Greek speakers who Greeks thought were inferior and uncivilized. So... When you heard them speak, it sounded bar, 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 bar. You didn't understand, so you called them barbarians. That's what it came from. Now, I'm very interested in the Black Sea area because I've been involved in working around that area for a long time. Scylla and I were privileged to be involved in planting a church in Suchi when we were two or three years ago on the Black Sea coast. So we love that area. And... So I picked up a book a few years ago called Black Sea, written by a secular historian and journalist called Neil Asherson. 
And to my surprise, he suddenly quoted the scripture. And he said this, civilization and barbarism were twins born in the Greek imagination. They in turn gave birth, this is so powerful, to a ruthless mental dynasty which still holds invisible power over the Western mind. We called it a stronghold. The Roman and Byzantine empires sanctified their own imperial struggles as a defence of civilised order against barbaric primitivism. So did the colonial expressions of Spain, Portugal, Holland, France, Germany and Britain. These lies were built into the expansion of colonialism. That somehow the colonial powers were civilising others. What awful sinful thinking. Stand. It's looking down on others as being less refined, less civilised, less important. Then it says, no Scythian. Who are they? Well, they were a people who came from the steppes of southern Russia and Crimea. And they were a nomadic people compared with the Greeks who were settled people. And often settled people look down on nomadic people. Still happens today. And Scythians were, they told Scythian jokes. Now, praise God, jokes about other nations are now not around so much. You know, stereotypes and all that. Okay? But they told Scythian jokes in those days. And Asherson says, when Greek met Scythian, began the idea of Europe. Now, by Europe, he doesn't mean the EU. He doesn't mean, uh, he means all European peoples, even if they live in North America, white North Americans, Australians, white South Africans, and so on, as well as Europeans. When Greek met Scythian, began the idea of Europe with all its arrogance, all its implications of superiority, all its assumptions of priority and antiquity, all its pretension to a natural right to dominate. Got that? And it's true. As I travel around the world, I often find people of European descent assume they're going to dominate the conversation. So well, this is how we do it. So? Now, of course, it appears in other cultures as well. As I work in Africa, some tribes think they're, dominant, they're, they're superior to others. In India, the caste system says, okay, our caste is better than your caste. In the church, it has to be totally broken down. The big test being whether you accept marriage between tribes and castes and nations. Very important. Because it, repentance is necessary. Because Paul here is declaring Christ, the victory of Christ over the whole of that attitude and saying what counts is not these divisions but Christ being all in all. Holy living is living free of racial prejudice as much as it's living free from sexual immorality. Repentance is necessary for any prejudice or unconscious superiority as the Holy Spirit reveals it. 
And then finally, in our worship, let us reflect our different beautiful cultures in our worship. We need to work on that a bit. Styles that suit all. Recognizing not everyone has English as their first language. Now, Scylla and I can read Russian, and we sit in a service in Russia, and we can see all the words on the screen, and we try and sing it, but how do you get all those? We can't read it fast enough to get all those words into the melody. And then I think, ah, oh, people who have English as their second language might find that difficulty back home as well. So, our DNA as a church is to firstly come from the DNA of the church in Scripture, which broke down all barriers. Secondly, is to reflect our community of Bedford, to reach our community in Bedford. So allow that to work within us. God bless you. I, and this is the only service I can pray for you. Okay? <laughs> can we stand together for a moment? Father, thank you for the power of the cross which broke down divisions between us and you. Lord, in our sinfulness, we could not approach your holiness, but in your gift of righteousness through the cross of Christ, you've made us acceptable to you and everybody acceptable on exactly the same basis. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, therefore, Lord, that we can't entertain in our hearts any thought of superiority, we want to be people who, wherever our background, respect one another, love one another, demonstrate unity between one another in order to reach this town with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray. And in order to truly reflect our new identity in Christ, that we're not Greek or Jew, English or Nigerian, we're firstly one in Christ, and then work out this through whatever nation we happen to come from. Father, help us to be like it. Lord, we pray, help our identity to be settled as those in Christ. Father, we pray, bless us and help us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 You've been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.